Chapter Thirteen A of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. On the subject of Negro slavery, abolitionists have said and done much in America to raise a tumult among the people, and they have succeeded by resorting like hackneyed politicians to all kinds of extravagant arguments, positions, and stories, with the view of winning their way to political power in the country. When this shall be accomplished, if ever it can be, we will venture to foretell that the Union will be two distinct governments. The southern states are determined to hold the rights granted to them in the great compact of the Constitution, with respect to Negro slavery, as in this right they feel, to a man, that their happiness and security, as to wealth and its resources, depend. For it is impossible without this to cultivate the country. Any and all advances, therefore, of the North, to meddle with that subject, will be repelled with anger and violence, the natural result of encroachments upon the resources of any people. If, therefore, abolitionism is persisted in, there will arise a division of the states, as sure as effect will follow its cause, with all the horrors of such an event. The great lever by which abolitionists operate is that of a pretended sympathy for the Negro race, in their condition of slavery, causing the people who hear them to take for granted, as truth, all the horrible stories of atrocities and crimes, perpetrated by southern planters, committed on the bodies and souls of their slaves. No matter whether the revolting stories are true or false, so long as they can get them to be believed, they will answer the purpose just as well. Men should beware how they enter the list against the decrees of heaven on any subject, and contend about its judgments, marshalling their eloquence and intrigues in battle array against them, if such judgments or decrees happen not to suit the views of discontented and designing men, who would lead a well-meaning public as they list, with no other views than the exaltation of themselves to public place and power. When this shall be accomplished, if such a thing can ever happen, the great sympathetic impetus by which the machine now is moving will cease to exist, passing away like the fogs of the night, leaving the negro race to look out for themselves as heretofore. Thus will end the mooted subject of negro excellencies. The men who now admire the race and see in them the germs of prodigious mental powers will not be found as other business than the exaltation of a people upon whom god has passed his decree of servitude and inferiority secured in the imbecilities of their very natures suppose the negroes in the southern states were all set free would the southern and tropical countries get their plantations of corn tobacco cotton indigo oranges rice and sugar cultivated the whites cannot labor effectually in those countries, 
as they can in the north. But the negro man is created in such a manner as to resist, or rather to agree with the heat, fogs, and dews of that atmosphere, so that he is not injuriously affected by it, as are the whites. There is no system but that of compulsory servitude, by which this labor, on which so much depends, can be done. For if it is left to the free will, or the necessities of the blacks, there could never be any certainty, as instances of freed blacks in the English West India Islands refusing to work, has often occurred, and this even among the better sort, such as were members of religious societies. If, therefore, these occurrences take place among the better sort of blacks, what may not be expected from those of a more improvident turn of mind, such as is the great mass? On the island of St. Domingo, says Barclay, on slavery in the West Indies, pages 8, 137, 350, 357, once justly termed the Queen of the Antilles, cultivation has nearly ceased, the exportable commodities having dwindled down from 151,000 tons to little more than 17,000. Professor Boyer, of San Domingo, offered to the free Negroes of America, 6,000 in number, to give them land in the island, if they would come and live there and work the land. But when they had seen the country and the people of their own race, they were glad to return to America, as bad as their condition is represented to be in the United States, which they preferred to all the mighty privileges of Haiti under a black president or king. Barclay further states that the case of the Myroons in Jamaica is no better, showing how little the possession of mere freedom betters the Negro's condition. They have been free ever since the English took possession of the island. Have they, inquires Barclay, become more civilized or more industrious? Everyone knows they have not. The men continue to roam half-naked in the woods, hunting and fishing, compelling their women to do the work, entirely disregarding all the conveniences of industrious life, choosing rather to be thus wretched than to labor. This is exactly the character of their brethren, the Hottentots, and the other tribes of Africa, who are so lazy and improvident, says Damberger, the Traveler, Volume 1, page 57, that they will nearly starve before they will even fish or hunt, preferring to wander in the woods, living on berries and roots. With this view, it would be national madness to emancipate the southern blacks. Besides, the irreparable injury to the very negroes themselves in casting their myriads, poor, ignorant, helpless, and naked, upon imbecile resources, placing them in a condition favorable to immediate destruction. The slaves of the southern states, it is said, amount to more than three millions. Were this almost countless host set free today, who can calculate the horrible mischief and ruin that would follow, not only to white population, 
but to the blacks also. On the first night of the day of their emancipation, there would be heard over the entire land the bleat and belling of flocks and herds. Fires would be seen in all directions, by which their cooking in the open air would be carried on. All this would be foreseen by the calculating whites, who would be prepared with guns and defensive arms, when murders and strife would rage in all directions. What next? The military would be put in requisition, when the work of death and slaughter would go on like a fire in the wilderness over the entire southern states. The Negroes would now become the objects of terror and midnight dread to houses in remote and unprotected places. Prisoners would be taken in multitudes, who would be shot down or hanged without judge or jury. In such a state of things, the Negroes would take to the woods and caves of the mountains, and the morasses of the lower lands, from whence sallying forth in different portions of the country, as they should be impelled by hunger, revenge, or love of violence and robberies, perpetrating deeds of horror and crime everywhere. To head and lead them on, there would not be wanting base white men, who, to profit by the times, would furnish arms and provisions, exciting the wrath of the blacks, on account of their former slavery and present trouble. But, says one, an abolitionist, all this, as above, is but conjecture, a mere fiction, which supposes that the Negroes would not be willing to labor on the southern plantations were they emancipated. But experience, in all cases where the thing has been tried, proves that the conjecture is true in a great measure. And, besides that, they manifest no such emotion as gratitude on such occasions. An exhibition of their feelings, when set free, is seen in the fate of the white owners on the island of San Domingo, who, when the French National Assembly, 1791, decreed that all the Negroes of that island were free and equal with the whites, they immediately butchered the whole population. Butler's History of the United States, Volume 3, page 392. This was one of the wild, deluded, and mad decrees of the horrible French Revolution, which had, for one of its immediate effects, the total extermination of the white population of San Domingo, in which neither age nor sex were spared from the dagger. The women were violated of all ages, and then killed. So great was the hatred and violence of the freed blacks. Were the same course pursued by the great South, in setting the slaves all free at once, there would, beyond all doubt, follow a tragedy of the same description, as there is no natural love between the races, especially when the negro is made free and equal. In this particular, the abolitionists of America, in their doctrine of an immediate and simultaneous emancipation of the negroes of all the southern states, are as far out of the way as were the furious mobs of the French Revolution, who could not see the difference there is between black and white. 
were the three and a half million of slaves of the South set free, and were they, to a man, to manifest no hostile feelings, yet how could they be saved from becoming paupers over the whole of those countries, seeing they have no land or means of support? Their natural improvidence of mind is well known to all, on which account they would, as to the great mass, have to be supported by the whites as legal paupers, unless they were compelled to labor, to prevent such a result, which compulsion would be but a renewal of slavery, were it resorted to. Perfect and unqualified liberty, extended to the slaves of the whole South, would be the certain ruin, not only of the great Negro population, but of the whites also, as the required labor would not be performed. And yet the blacks would have to be supported by the whites, who would soon have nothing to do with it, as the wealth of the whole slave states depends on agriculture alone. The interference of the northern states with the slave question, as to the principle of the thing, is a most unwarrantable violation of states' rights, inasmuch as the slave system, as practiced in the South, is no injury to the North, but rather of immense good, as shown in the production of tropical commodities, in which fact it is clearly seen that the interests of the two regions of the Union are blended in one. He, therefore, who favors the interruption of states' rights granted in the great compact, as set forth in the Constitution, is a disorganizer, and is blind to the interests of the great family of the Union, therein agreeing with the bitterest enemy, the English government. America has, among all the nations of the earth, who are ever aiming to cripple the commerce and productions of this country, in order to favor that of their own. In agreement with this disorganizing spirit, there is, at this moment, existing a powerful combination of abolitionists who have formed a multitude of lines or routes by which runaway slaves are enabled to make their escape from the respective states bordering on the north. These men furnish money, horses, and all necessary aids for the escape of runaways, giving them countenance and support in their houses until they can reach the Canadas, thus coalescing with the British in robbing the citizens of the South of their property, as recognized in the Constitution of the United States. What is to be thought of such men? who not only violate the ceded and acknowledged right of the slave-holding states, but are also united with an ancient enemy of the Union, in disturbing and endangering the peace and safety of the whole country. In pursuance of this kind of violence and outrage upon the feelings and lawful interests of the public, the Massachusetts legislature of 1843 have passed a law that no difference shall be made by the agents of steam-cars on the railroads of that state, between black and white passengers, in this way compelling citizens of their own state, and those of the others, 
as well as foreigners, to mingle and associate with blacks, whether it is agreeable or not. See Daily American Citizen, February 2nd, 1843. Do the people of Massachusetts, or abolitionists in general, imagine that they have a right to make laws to compel an association between two races of men so different from each other as are Negroes and white men, a difference which God himself is the author of, and was therefore never to be infringed? Such conduct is nothing short of rebellion against God, manifested in this attempt, confounding the order of creation. Is it not far more wise to let the Negro race remain as they are in the South, rather than to set them free, and thereby put them in a position of becoming immediately in all the states, wherever they may choose to wander, an expense as paupers, and, at the same time, destroy the agricultural interests of one-half the United States, as it is impossible to supply the place of the slaves with white laborers in the hot climates. It is said by abolitionists that on account of the slavery of the South, that the costs of carrying the mail in those regions amount to more than the income, because slavery, they say, discourages labor. But this position of theirs must be false, as without the Negro services there would be no agricultural labor at all, in which case the costs of carrying the mail would be immensely increased, and the income depreciated in the same ratio. There is, therefore, no way under the light and auspices of heaven by which the southern portions of the United States and other tropical countries can be inhabited by civilized men, but by that of Negro labor. And as Negroes will not labor unless compelled, there is, therefore, no way left in the divine providence to accomplish this but that of their enslavement that the english put no dependence on the dispositions of the freed blacks to do the work of their plantations in the west india islands and elsewhere in their various and great possessions in different parts of the world is shown in their new expedient of inveigling away from their homes and country a certain class of the natives of India called Hill Coolies, who they employ instead of the slaves they have freed, whose labor will cost them even less than their former slave labor. For an account of the Hill Coolie business, see Little's Museum of Literature, Science and Art, Volume 34, Number 189, Page 140, Year 1838. These hill coolies are not negroes, but a yellow swarthy race of the lowest of the laboring castes in India. According to the work above quoted, it is said that there are circumstances attending the inveigling these men from their country to traverse half the globe in quest of labor, which shows that some principle far enough from justice or mercy actuates the English in this business, notwithstanding 
their seemingly noble generosity in manumitting their slaves, which is trumpeted over the whole earth as a deed of immense benevolence and sacrifice. The Parliament of England do not often make sacrifices in their bargains, nor relinquish their grasp of power in any particular gratuitously. If they did, they would not oppress their own subjects as they do, on which account the great mass of their people lack their daily bread. This is well known to all the world, and is occasioned by perpetual and exorbitant taxations, causing the people of both England and Ireland to run away to America and other countries, to avoid being starved to death. Even the abolitionists of America denounce the English government in the most direct and accusatory terms, in relation to insincerity, respecting their profession of philanthropy toward enslaved human beings under their control in the conquered countries of India. The abolitionists charge the English with aiding in the emancipation of the Negro race, just as much as their political interests invite them and no more. This is no doubt a true charge. To show the truth of this charge, as well as the fact of English insensibility to the Negro's liberties, we see in the New York Express, June 21st, 1842, that they are now actually in the business of getting Negroes from the wilds of Africa, along the coasts of the river Gambia, this, however, they do not affect in the same way as heretofore, or prior to the compact of the nations on this subject. But they do it under a form of law, in the shape of an indenture, the same as taking apprentices. In effecting this, the negro is compelled to take a pen between his fingers, while the hand is guided by the grip of the master so that the name of the negro is set to the seal of the instrument, who is as ignorant of the power of the article as would be a monkey were one compelled to write. The blacks, thus apprenticed, are brought from the interior by negro capturers, as formerly employed by the English, and paid for doing so. The term of the time they are thus apprenticed is fourteen years. But when the time is up, who is there to tell them they are free? Will their masters? As late as February 1842, a vessel of 500 tons left the river above named, laden with 500 such apprentices. Thus it is seen that the English have invented a way by which they avoid the virtue of the treaty of the nations who have decreed it piracy to procure slaves from Africa, and yet desire to be lauded, because of her great love for the liberties of the Negro race, especially such as are slaves in America. End of chapter 13a